Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, Vish here. Uh, I don't uh, enjoy these episodes, uh, particularly the ones where I uh, decide to uh, do a little monologue, remembrance of someone close to me or someone I, I admire who has uh, gone away. I don't enjoy them for obvious reasons, I suppose. Uh, it's it's sad. Uh, and uh, today's uh, thing is uh, uh, extremely sudden and sad. Uh, and uh, so I'm going to talk about Dallas Good. Of the Sadies, uh, who passed away uh, suddenly. Um, as I'm speaking to you, it is uh, Friday, February eighteenth, twenty twenty-two. We, uh, I was awoken by some phone things on my phone. Um, uh, people texting me to tell me that uh, it seemed that Dallas had died, and. Um, so Dallas is someone I uh, have known for a long time as a fan and, and eventually uh, ostensibly a friend. Uh, I say ostensibly because it's another one of these situations where uh, we were brought into each other's orbit because of the work uh, that he did. Uh, and my initial interactions were in the audience. Uh, and as time uh, went on, in my work as a journalist and a broadcaster and an interviewer and all those sorts of things, uh, and as a someone who would introduce bands at festivals across this country of Canada, uh, we would just cross paths so much that you can't help but uh, become friendly. So my thing is, just to follow up on, again, this is one of those things where I actually, in this particular instance, I wrote some stuff down because I've been asked to write uh, tributes and be on the radio and all sorts of things. And uh, I said I would do some of them, and I also thought I should write some of this stuff down. The previous times I've done these kinds of podcast monologue remembrances, I haven't written anything down. I'm reticent to do such things on the one hand because it's not a fun thing to have to do. Uh, I also worry that it's a weird zone that we're in sometimes where your grief is immediately... Uh, either you're asked to turn your grief into content or you do it yourself. And so it makes me wonder why I'm doing this. Uh, every time, every time I've done this, I've, I'm like, why am I doing this? And the reason I'm doing it again, and the reason I did it the second time, I think this is probably the third one of these I've done, is because uh, when I do them and they go out, uh, people respond to say that it helped them. It helped them grieve, this is what mourning is. You share your grief and you share your memories of someone who's gone. And I get that. I'm just trying to say to you that I feel weird about doing this. Uh, and I just want to, I guess I just need to hear myself say that so that I acknowledge that I, uh, I'm, I'm grieving publicly, uh, as a lot of people are today for Dallas and his friends and his family and his colleagues. Uh, I just want you to know that I'm, Whatever. I hope this doesn't come across as whatever, you know, trying to generate content and attention. It's not. I just, 
It's just uh, uh, one of my modes of expression is this show. And uh, as I say, I've been asked to contribute to other media outlets about this. Uh, and so to honor Dallas, who's been on the show and who uh, I have a long history with, I'm going to do it. And I'm going to turn off my phone so it doesn't ding. Oh, I guess my as I'm talking to you, the written tribute I wrote for Exclaim is up. So I was asked by Exclaim magazine uh, to write something. And that was what that... <laughs> dinger was so i'm going to use that as a reference good timing exclaim good tweet i'm going to use that as a reference point for this um uh, remembrance uh, um so uh so just for some background uh, dallas good uh was not uh he's about four years older than me he wasn't even 50 years old uh from what i can tell and as I often said, uh, whenever I had the chance to introduce them at music festivals or in print even, I would call them the greatest rock and roll band in the world. And when I was on stage, that uh, always made Dallas very happy and proud that someone might say such a thing, such a complimentary thing. But I really believed it. I saw the Sadies live more than I've seen anyone live. Uh, and I've lost track of how many times. Um the first time I saw them, it was uh, their second uh, or third show, I think I want to say that. Um, I know it was ostensibly Mike Belitsky's, the drummer's, uh, Mike Belitsky's first show with them. This was at the Volcano Club in Kitchener, Ontario. I want to say it was, I was around 16 or 17, so I want to say it was 93, 94, something like that. And um, that kick-started a, a relationship uh, one way, ostensibly, you know, the way a fan would 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 follow a band, uh, but eventually, kind of a a two way um, thing because we became friendly. Now, so that was that's just part of my history. Um, as I'm speaking to you, honestly, I thought I would be seeing the Sadies soon. Uh, we're in the pandemic. As I'm talking to you, uh, it's all over the place. They've played some shows. In fact, they played. In my old hometown of Guelph, Ontario, they did a hillside festival. Kind of, a, they came to Guelph and played on a, at a venue, but there was no audience, and it was live streamed. And in normal circumstances, I would have made a point of being there. You know, uh, if I lived there, I'd be there somehow. I'd, I, I would still do work for that festival. Uh, Sadie's and I are friends. So I would have been there, and I couldn't make it. This was like two weeks ago, week and a half ago, whatever it was. And I've heard from my colleague at the Hillside, Sam, that who is beside himself with grief himself. Just like I don't, it's inconceivable that we've lost Dallas. I was just with him. I was just watching. They asked me if I had any footage of Buffy St. Marie performing at Hillside. And I pulled it up off my email and they were giddiest children. They love Buffy so much. So I thought I would, anyway, they had been as active as you could be because they were just, they were the epitome of, what it means to be a, a great rock and roll band. They were very serious. They were very impassioned. They were obviously, well, not obviously, maybe you don't know them. For those of us who saw them, extremely talented, extremely reliable, like nary, you know, they don't make mistakes. They, they practice like hell, uh, but they're also very fun. They're very playful. I got to know them off stage and in real life, and they were unbelievable people. And as I wrestle with what to think or say about Dallas, I feel like uh, when I think about the Sadies and what they stood for, I think they were really, my perception anyway, is that they were an extension of Dallas. Um, the band was uh, generally, for the most part, with few exceptions, some guests every once in a while, even on stage. Uh, the band consisted of Travis Good, who was Dallas's brother, and Mike Blitzky on drums and Sean Dean on bass. And anyone who saw them knew they were something. They're the kind of band where if you were in their presence, you felt it. Um, David Berman has that line in Smith & Jones about, I mean, it's very morbid. When they turn on the chair, something's added to the air. I felt that with the Sadies. They had that charisma, that presence, that kind of magic where you knew, like, the, yeah, we... we Music people talk about this, and it's why we clamor for bands to be like, when you see a band, you want like the original members because you know that some the, they made something together, and the Sadies had that magic, 
whatever you want to call it, they had it. Uh, from a personal point of view, it was uh, for me and a personal experience, it wasn't just that they were these amazing virtuoso players and that they wrote these incredible songs together uh, and worked so hard that I would see them. I don't know. I would see them so much. Every year I would see the Sadies of several. When I lived in Ontario and there wasn't a pandemic, I would see the Sadies minimum, you know, three, four, or five times a year or something somehow. It just seemed that way. I just always took it for granted almost. And again, that stems from that Volcano show. Prior to that Sadie show that I saw as a kid, I would see Dallas perform in a, a band called the Satanatras. Uh, later, he would perform in a band called Phonocomb. Sadie's were in that sort of same time frame. Rick White, who was just on the show, he and I have been exchanging some messages today uh, in grief. Uh, Rick White and Dallas were very close friends. Rick would write songs for the Sadie's. Um, the Sadies wrote a song about Rick on their last album, Northern Passages. I hope I'm saying everything accurately and correctly. I don't have anything in front of me, really, in terms of that stuff. Um, Dallas would play in Rick's Project Elevator as well. Dallas would play with uh, Arcade Fire's Richard Reed Perry. Uh, for me, uh, one of the real highlights was uh, Shadowy Man on a Shadowy Planet reformed or reunited or reanimated itself. Um, and because uh, their bass player, original bass player Reed Diamond, had long passed uh, had passed away long, long time ago, uh, Dallas was able to fill in, and I know it was a, a dream gig for him, and I got to see Shadowy Men on a Shadowy Planet in that iteration many, many times. Um, so all this to say, I feel like I was joined to Dallas. I was uh, just connected. To, I've been connected with Dallas and his work for so long. I was uh, in a very small crowd of people when uh, the Sadies in an early form played the Black Mustard, which was like a little restaurant in Guelph. Uh, ironically, or not ironically, I guess just side note, it's also, that's the place. It's so tiny, by the way. It wasn't really a music venue. It was just a restaurant that made room for bands every once in a while. Uh, beyond that Sadie show, it's notable for me because it was the first uh, time I set up an Arcade Fire show. Um, was And they played this little bar restaurant thing and there was 15 people there and they started with wake up and within a year they were the biggest band or whatever and sort of indie rock and anyway that's the black mustard it's not there anymore it's called something else uh, i don't even know what it is, if it exists anymore i haven't been in guelph since the pandemic but anyway sadies are on fire as always they just were always like consummate consummate sort of professionals the the, the work was very important every night every show was very important to them it, they took nothing for granted there's a lot of um, it's it sometimes seemed very serious. There's a self-imposed discipline there. I think uh, I feel like it emanated from Dallas. Uh, this, of course, meant that musicians loved them and respected them and their work ethic. And then they collaborated with all sorts of people. I have so many memories of seeing the Sadies. Uh, uh, I want to highlight just a couple because uh, they ended up some of the shows I saw turned into uh, live albums. Um, I saw them do live tapings at least Palace in Toronto. And they would also do these warm-up shows at the Starlight Club in Waterloo, which is, as far as I know, is also gone, is, is gone uh, since the pandemic, uh, one of my favorite venues in Ontario. So they would do a warm-up shows. Uh, when, they, then when they made a record with Nico Case, which ended up being called The Tigers Have Spoken, they did a, I'm pretty sure they did a warm-up show at the Starlight and then they'd play at Lee's Palace to properly record it, if you will. And so I went to both shows. I went to all both of those things. And they, then they did a similar thing for their In Concert Volume 1 record, which was recorded at Lee's in 2006 by Steve Albini. And it featured a whole whack of people. Nico Case, The Good Brothers, um, which is uh, Dallas and Travis's uh, uh uh, dad and, and an uncle, I want to say off the top of my head, and some other folks. The bands, Garth Hudson was there. Margaret Good, their mother, uh, was there. Members of Blue Rodeo, Rick White, John Spencer, and Matt Verde, Matt Verderay of uh, Heavy Trash, John Langford of uh, Mekons, Kelly Hogan, uh, uh, members of the Deadly Snakes, uh, it was amazing. And, and so th that was the kind of thing that they would do they just galvanized artists from all over the place to join them and collaborate with them 
And that's some of them. I mean, there are other connections they made. Uh, they worked with Andre Williams and Robin Hitchcock and John Doe of X and Gord Downey of The Tragically Hip and Buffy St. Marie and Kurt Vile and uh, Jim Jarmusch, the director, was a huge fan. I mentioned Richard Reed Perry earlier and Neil Young. They made a song with Neil Young uh, for a tribute to the band. And I saw them open for Neil Young and Crazy Horse three, four times uh, some years ago now at arenas in Ontario. I uh, made a trek to Ottawa to see Patti Smith did one of those shows. So Patti Smith opened, Sadie's played, then Patti Smith played, then Neil Young and Crazy Horse played in Ottawa. And it was the only one of the, it was one of the few shows Patti Smith did. So I wanted to go see that. Anyway, at the center of all this is kind of the Sadie's in Dallas. They're the one that they were the lure. They're the magnet for me. Uh, I still remember Mike Belitsky brought me backstage at the Neil Young show in Kitchener. And I don't have too much to say about it, except, you know, it was interesting. You could see some luminaries. You could see some, it was pretty chill and, and stuff and, and whatnot. But it was just like, what the hell? This band is bringing me into these weird orbits. And that's kind of how it's always been. Um, yeah, I have a weird perspective on it i think because i went from being just in the crowd to you know through my work as a i played with the sadies and the bands i was in uh, at least one show that i can remember off the top of my head with my old band the neutron stars and by divine right played a show with the sadies in guelph oh man i just want to thank lil milanovich lil is a dogged and tireless promoter of live music in guelph ontario and beyond and in that area and she worked so hard, and she brought the Sadies. The Sadies were endlessly uh, loyal to her because she put she stuck her neck out for bands and would pay out of her pocket and by no means could afford it, um, I don't think. I, I think it was just a generosity thing. I don't want to speak on her behalf but or get too personal, but she just was so incredible. And uh, for a good chunk of, of, of this century, I got to experience and see things because of Lil, and notably the Sadies would often every year they would play her concert Dog Day Afternoon and out in the country on a farm just outside of Guelph uh, and uh, if I if I wanted to uh, it, it, I will tell you like every once in a while I'd, I'd have an idea for the Sadies to come and play Guelph and as a testament to them I'll tell you they would say well we gotta check with Lil it's just incredibly loyal to Lil, I mean, to me eventually as well. Like, I mean, to me, when they got to know me better, yeah, I was an ally and they would they would do things to help me for sure. But uh, it struck me that they were like, no, Lil helped us. We're sticking with Lil. And I'm sure Lil's not the only person across this country that fits that bill for them. You know, we're going to help. So um, anyway, through my sort of other work, Beyond being a fan of the band and seeing them all the time, I was a musician, journalist, broadcaster, and I, I often um, covered the Sadies as much as I could, which meant I got to talk to them and hang out with them sometimes. And the more I did that kind of stuff uh, across Canada, you know, I remember seeing them in Calgary and Sackville, New Brunswick, and across Ontario and probably other places I'm not even remembering. Uh, it's a bit of a blur. Was Halifax, Newfoundland? I don't know. All the places at Dawson City, were they there when I was there? I don't think they were. But anyway, I've seen them and been with them and introduced them on stages. And um, and the more I did that sort of stuff and got to be kind of in their orbit, I realized that Dallas really had a vision for everything they did or didn't do. And he operated with this instinct for how the band could carry itself with real integrity. And, 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 and that wasn't normal in... Certainly not in the Canadian music business. There's always some chicanery and some off sometimes. You know, it depends on who you're dealing with, but didn't get that from the Sadies. They always seem to be respectful and mindful of of what bullshit was and how to avoid it. But they also had fun, and they um, to see them was such a treat. They would wear these very slick suits, nudie suits or whatever you want to call it, and just slick outfits. And um, they put a lot of time into their showmanship and their 
the way they carry themselves on stage. Dallas would often be in charge of banter. It was always very kind of low-key, dry, <laughs> matter-of-fact uh, kind of banter. Uh, obviously, the most talented group of rock musicians I can... No one is better than them. No one. Anywhere. And as I said earlier, they just seem to keep their loyalists and their early supporters in mind when they did stuff. And they're just, they were just professional. Professional people in a punk rock vein. And as I pondered uh, Dallas today, I think I, I kind of came to the conclusion that I feel like a lot of those positive attributes were driven by him and his sense that he could be this positive force in the world. And so what I said on Twitter today at one point and what I've articulated in this article that is out now, um, as I think about all of these degrees of separation and connections, I think Dallas Good was really the center of the Canadian music universe. Uh, in ways that you don't, you may have no idea what I'm talking about, and you may not think know about it. But I just, I, I have come to the conclusion that a lot of the experiences I've had, a lot of the links between uh, the music I most love and the musicians I hold dearest, uh, not just in Canada but from around the world, I think there's weirdly, if I think on it, there's almost always some connection to Dallas and the Sadies. Um, of course, this could mean simply that we have similar, we're in the same milieu, we have similar values, similar aesthetic interests. But I also know that from a personal point of view, I respected his opinion. And so that happens in a in, almost by osmosis in, in such a community. You know, you, you value the people as tastemakers and you may not even realize until you've had a conversation that you're both into the same stuff. Uh, or you both are super into something that very few other people are talking about. That happens a lot, but I've, I think that occurred a lot with Dallas uh, and me. And if he vouched for something, I would pay attention. And similarly, I would, I would, um, I would try to help them too, where I could, and connect them to people. It happened from time to time. Uh, I remember receiving an email from the people in Godspeed You Black Emperor sometime in uh, I wanted I think it was early 2010, and I I probably have it somewhere. I didn't pull it up for this, but I I remember them just saying like, "Hey Vish, like, do you have a way to connect with the Sadies? I want to ask them about something." And so I I I think I just CC Dallas on the uh, on the call or on the email rather. I just CC Dallas, which I don't normally do. Sometimes if I figured it was all legit. Sometimes I don't do, I, I would forward it, you know, to someone like Dallas, but I was like, I'll just CC Dallas. And he's like, Hey, here I am. What's going on? <laughs> and, uh, the next thing I, I didn't, I took my, I was like, go ahead, have fun. I don't need to be on this thread or whatever. And, and so I don't know what occurred after that, but except that I do know that subsequent to that communication, uh, the Sadies were part of the all tomorrow's parties, uh, the nightmare before Christmas event that Godspeed was asked to curate uh, for all tomorrow's parties and later that December. So just this weird, what I'm getting at, I guess, is uh, just connections. Like we're all kind of connected. And, and when I think about it, Dallas and I were connected. I mean, I know that's a fact, but I think we connected to other orbits and other people and other spheres. And, uh, and so that's kind of gone. That's gone, obviously. Uh, so that's weird for me. But yeah, beyond so I'm, you know, as a music person in this world, I am into who talks to different people all the time. I end up helping connect people or, you know, uh, being this social convener or whatever you want to call it. And so, yeah, it's not unusual for people to 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 ask me to connect them with, with other people. And I do my best to do that when I can. Uh, but Dallas, in turn, I think would vouch for me with other people um, uh, or else people recognize that I was connected to the Sadies and then they would, that would give me a little bit of, uh, uh, what's the word, cachet with them. 
I had a thing. Uh, I don't remember if it was 2020 or 2021. We did a tribute to Neil Young for a CKUA where I work. And one of the ideas was to get people who love Neil Young to participate. So one of the people I was trying to figure out how to get a hold of was Jim Jarmusch. And ultimately who connected me to Jim was Lee Ronaldo of Sonic Youth. Uh, I didn't I didn't even clue into the Sadie's. I knew there was a connection there, but I didn't call upon uh, Dallas or Travis or anyone to be like, hey, can you connect me with Jim? I didn't think of it. I just didn't think of it. So Lee actually helped me connect with Jim for this segment about Neil. So I get on the phone with Jim Jarmusch, who I respect immensely uh, as a as a filmmaker, and I introduce myself. And he goes, uh, oh, I know who you are. And then he told me that um, <laughs> he was a huge fan of a pretty weird and awkward talk show interview thing I did with the Sadies uh, some years ago. Uh, it was on YouTube. I'd actually taken it, I'd taken it all down, that talk show stuff. It was called Long Night with Vishkan. Like, you've, if you know the show, you know that I would do this long night talk show uh, at Long Winter, which was pretty scrappy, but we had a deal where we were um, commissioned to actually film it, a film, a proper version of it. The one at Long Winter was never filmed. We recorded it for audio purposes. It was so scrappy. Um, But we actually had a film crew, and we did six episodes, and I had it up, but after a while I decided to take it down, and I can't remember what the motivation was, but something didn't fit with me. But then... Jim said uh, he lo- it was his favorite thing on YouTube, and he noticed that it was down, and he missed it. He loved to watch it. So I put it back up because of that, and that was a- he just loved the Sadies, loves the Sadies so much that uh, I was like, what the hell? What is this band? Like, how am I connected to all these people through this band? I guess it makes sense. They tour their asses off. They met people all over the world, and they reach people, but it- the fact that I could benefit from that if you will is beyond me um anyway and i still remember that like there was some kerfuffle about timing and uh the sadies could only be there for a limited amount of time so we kind of really had to work together to make it work but dallas was on it super organized knew how to do it basically took over some aspects of the production of that taping so that it would all work just totally down to business and there for me and there for the idea and proud of me to have a show. Uh, I mean, I knew that. He was, yeah. Uh, I got a message. I, I reached out to a, a member of the Sadies today to express my sorrow. And um, they made a point of saying Dallas loved me and said that he would light up when I showed up. And I, I don't know that. Dallas, so thing, the thing with Dallas was... He was very cool, and, and, and he also he suffered no foolishness or fools. Uh, but if he got to know you, I think, that was my impression anyway early, and I'm sure those of you who've seen photos of him or encountered him on stage or only, you might think, well, I can see that. He seems pretty uh, uh, stoic and, or whatever, but he was also really goofy and fun, and I loved making him laugh. Like, even when I realized, like, I started making him laugh a little bit early, probably, just out of maybe awkwardness or whatever. But when I realized I could make him laugh, something about making someone like that laugh where you feel like, oh, what a mirror. I made this this guy laugh. He's so stony. And anyway, uh, one of the last times I saw the Sadies was in Ontario uh, before my family and I moved to Alberta. And I was backstage with them at the Starlight Club in Waterloo. Again, RIP as far as I know. I don't think the club exists anymore. Anyway, Dallas has told had told me I think over text before that he really enjoyed a segment that I do for Exclaim magazine. Uh, it's an online segment. It's it's basically this week and funny this funny week and funny tweets. It's a roundup of t- funny tweets by other people that I compile for Exclaim every week. It started out as busy work. I don't know what to tell you, folks, but I have heard this sentiment from a number of musicians and people. Some have said it's their favorite thing about Exclaim now. They look forward <laughs> to and anticipate funny tweets. And so on the one hand, I'm like, that's fun. On the, on the other hand, I will say, I'm like, really? Of all the things I've done, that's the thing I'm going uh, that you love the most is just me grabbing other people's stuff. But it's fine. I, uh, I can live with it. Dallas would often... Uh, 
message me or and I would often I, he kind of stopped I, I would send him the links when they were up and he would be like yes and I did that more recently uh, I, I do it periodic sporadically now I or I was doing it sporadically uh, I didn't do it every week but anyway he would often message me if something in the funny tweets really made him uh, laugh and um, uh, over the years uh, since I've been doing the funny tweets, uh, which was my, I should say it was the, he's gone from the magazine now, but James Keese was the editor. It was, I really think it was his idea to give me something to do and, uh, and something useful to do with the internet. Uh, but there were, there had been a couple of instances over the years that I've been doing funny tweets where I would put, I would submit it or maybe I was late. I don't remember if I would submit it on time or I was late, but for whatever reason it would, for whatever reason it just wasn't posted on time on, on whatever day, these days it goes up on um, Friday morning, but I think we changed that. Uh, but anyway, sorry, this is not interesting. The point is, some days, there were a couple of occasions I remember that it had to go up late on the website. And uh, on both of those, the occasions that I can think of, Dallas texted me uh, devastated and sad and heartbroken, saying stuff like, well... It was great while it lasted. He assumed funny tweets had been canceled because it hadn't been posted yet. And uh, that's it was just very sweet and funny. And uh, I used to have this joke with my editors when they if they said, I can't get to it right away. It'll be up later. I'm like, all right, well, Dallas is Dallas. Good is not going to be happy about this. Um, So uh, he had a really fun side. Anything with cats. He loved his cats. And he loved any jokes about cats, tweets about cats. This is getting pretty silly, I guess. But uh. So, yeah, as I was saying, I heard from someone today who said that Dallas's affection for me was, and you know, our affection for each other was more mutual than maybe I knew. And uh, that's very nice. I have chosen some nice heroes uh, and I've chosen some accessible heroes and I've chosen some people to admire who see something in me where, you know, I don't quite understand it, but we become friendly or friends. Um, so Dallas was, was both of those things for me. Um, and because the Sadies toured so hard and met so many people around the world, I know there are thousands of people like me. Like you, you were a fan. Uh, you maybe had some sort of business relationship with them, but you also were impacted by them as people on a personal level. And the more you got to know Dallas and could be uh, exposed to his humanity, his spirit, and his warmth, Uh, The more you realized he was really special and that band was really special, is really special. And so it's... uh, What I've written here in this piece that I'm referencing and what I wrote on Twitter today and uh, said to some other people is that uh, I think Dallas Good made music better. And that might be obvious, but I think he made the world better. He... um, He was really one in a million, man. I, I don't know. And I think music, from my perspective, like I say, from what I've said to you, like I, it occurred to me that so many of my most treasured and cherished experiences in music uh, can be connected to the Sadies in some way, and Dallas in particular in some way. And uh, this has been a... For me, it's still a period of stillness when it comes to seeing music. I talk to people a lot, uh, but I haven't seen it. I really thought the Sadies would be the first band I got to see. Uh, I mean, I, I didn't know that for a fact. Other people have been coming through, and, I, and that won't happen now. I don't, And that uh, breaks me up. Like, that's the worst part of this. Uh, on, a, on, a, on a fan level, it's not, a, it's not the worst part on any other level. Because uh, someone who mattered so much in 
in so many ways to Canadian and, and, and music around the world is gone. It's been a few hours since this news, so I'm... I've And I've written something, and I've talked to my wife about it, and I've talked to other people about it a little bit, and I, so I think I'm in this processing mode still uh, about it. But I've come to turn... Like, I for most of the day, I just couldn't... I didn't think it was true, and I didn't want to believe it was true for someone of his age to go. Uh, and by the way, I mean, the Sadie's socials have released a statement now alluding to the fact that there was some sort of coronary issue there. It wasn't... Um, it wasn't planned or premeditated or it was sudden and shocking and I have some information from other friends that say yeah his heart uh, gave out in a very sad and sudden and shocking way uh, and so yeah I'm at a I'm just getting past the point where it seems impossible and I've, I'm at a point where I've Still unbelievable, but I, I'm I'm just at this point where I felt like I could do this, for example, which suggests a certain uh, presence or wherewithal or whatever you want to call it. So I'm obviously all of my love to Dallas's family, his parents, his brother, his family, like his colleagues, all of his friends, uh, and everyone who's going to try to carry on working the way he worked and with his spirit. Um, okay, I think I got through that. I mostly got through that stuff. I just wanted to pay some tribute to this guy who meant so much to all of us. And uh, what I'd like to do now is uh, in 2010, I was asked by Exclaim Magazine again uh, to do a... Sec- they had a feature called... Uh, where I play and what I play. It was music school. So you either talk to an artist about where they made stuff, music, or how and what they use to make music. So uh, my editor, again, James Keast, uh, asked me to talk to the Sadies, uh, Dallas and Travis Good in particular, about their history as two of the greatest guitar players to ever walk the face of the earth, let alone come from Toronto, Ontario. And so, yeah, I went down there and I recorded it. And then I took those recordings and I turned them into a radio documentary for the show that my wife and I had on CFRU called the Mishvish Interracial Morning Show. And I don't can't I, I can't find the session files. They must be on a hard drive somewhere. Uh, the mixing is not very good. Uh, what you're gonna I'm gonna play it for you. Uh, I previously offered this as a Patreon thing. For people some time ago um, but I'm going to uh, play I'm going to add it to this now I'm going to play it it's short relatively short but it's like a little documentary about Sadie's generally and so you'll hear Travis and Dallas and me in conversation about where they came from there are some uh, musical snippets uh, here and there the mix is not smart or good, but I was still getting used to doing that. So forgive me for that stuff. Uh, but whatever. And oh, sorry. Yeah. So this is a rip, an MP3 rip that I grabbed from the 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 radio station's website. So it's it's. It, I'm just making all my apologies in advance. I think it's good in terms of if you want to learn more about these guys and get a sense of where they came from. And uh, for me, it's just all part of remembering Dallas Good. Okay, I'm relatively okay at the moment, and I don't know why. It's been really, I made it through, and uh, I wasn't sure how this was going to go. Thank you for listening to this, and I hope you'll listen to the Sadies, who I thought I'd be talking to them about their new record. Uh, I assumed I would be. They've been kind of releasing singles and things. Um, Dallas and I had a talk about John Spencer's involvement uh, on the record in some capacity. Uh, John Spencer is due to be on the show for his own project in the coming weeks. 
So I assumed we would cover this in some capacity. Now we'll have to talk about it from a totally different uh, and less fun way of talking about it. But yeah, we were going to all remember Dallas, obviously. Sorry, I can't. I guess we're mourning, so it's okay for me to be morbid. We are going to do our best to uh, remember our our friend Dallas Good uh, and the person who made some of the greatest music uh, to ever come out of this country and uh, all those sorts of things. And uh, uh, if you're struggling with this, I, I hope you can get through it. And I hope we can get together, those of us who loved and missed Dallas uh, at some point soon. Um, yeah, I'm just going to leave it at that. So please enjoy this uh, piece uh, that I did in 2010 uh, about the Sadies. And uh, be well. I will talk to you soon. Thank you. Toronto's the Sadies are playing in Guelph at the Dublin Street United Church this Friday evening. That's them right now in the background with the song What's Left Behind from their 2007 record, New Seasons. Now, we love the Sadies on this show, and we've had uh, guitarist Dallas Good on as a guest. Uh, I guess it was a couple of years ago now. Now, I wanted to hear from him again, but rather than a straight interview this week, we're going to get into the history of the band by speaking to Dallas and his brother Travis about how they came to be two of the most sought-after guitarists in the world. Distinguished by their punk-infused country rock sound and an eclectic array of all-star collaborators, the Sadies are comprised of bassist Sean Dean, drummer Mike Belitsky, and hotshot guitar slingers Travis and Dallas Good. Raised in Aurora, Ontario, and direct descendants of Canadian bluegrass royalty in the Good Brothers, Travis, the elder, and Dallas were steeped in music making from a prodigious age. Here's Travis to tell us how he got started. I started when I was nine, and I took lessons from Red Shea, who was uh, at the time playing with uh, Gordon Lightfoot. And um, I took classical lessons from him for a long time. He didn't want to take me at nine, because he usually took people at 12 was the earliest he'd do it, but my hands were the same size then as they are now. <laughs> <laughs> You've got giant hands. I have giant hands, yeah. Does your stature, uh, both of you are very giant people, uh, does your stature actually help you when you're playing? I mean, obviously the hands. Well, it got me off to an early start, yeah, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if that's true. I mean, I'm just... Uh, well, you're nine years old with giant hands, and uh, that's why you started, I That's guess. why I started, yeah. And okay. I started with uh, taking classical lessons and finger-picking and stuff like that. And, uh, and eventually I just uh, started playing a lot. got started getting hand-me-down gear from the parents, the amps and stuff. And right. uh, bought a Vantage guitar when I was about 13 and learned how to play electric. Okay, and what actually compelled you? I mean, obviously you're from a musical family, but what actually compelled you to play? I don't know what it was because I don't think it was being from a musical fa family necessarily. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, you know, a lot, a lot of kids actually rebel against whatever their parents. That's do. that's that's why I would say yeah. that it's not necessarily because of my family. Okay. <laughs> because especially at that age, you know, it wasn't. Uh, I didn't. I, it, I, I didn't want to be just like my dad. Mm -hmm. No, no, totally. <laughs> Um, so I don't know what it was really, but I, I wanted to do it. And, and although my da our dad was really encouraging about us playing music and always was, he was also realistic about it, you know, saying that, you know, just because he made a living playing music doesn't mean that no matter how much you practice doesn't mean that you're going to make a living playing. So, you know, he was realistic about it. He said, you know, you're, you're going to have to work hard and, and, and you're going to be better off doing anything else. <laughs> if you want any security, do anything else. Did you? Was there ever a point where you thought you might be doing something other than what you're doing now? I still think I might be a uh, a hockey player. Is that right? <laughs> no. You still have hopes for that? Amazing. I that, know. <laughs> did you have a, a coordination? Did you play hockey at all? I did, but I was a much better guitar player than a hockey player. Okay. Even early, even at nine years old, I think. All right. <laughs> I'm the the neighborhood. I don't do what I should. Though he was influenced by Travis, Dallas was pulled into music earlier than his older brother. I started a little younger, but I didn't play guitar. I played piano. Mm -hmm. And uh, I took lessons from a woman named Mrs. Wood in Richmond Hill, who was amazing, because she just taught me. I never practiced. She noticed that, so she'd just teach me ear training. Oh. So by the time I stopped taking lessons from her, by the time she stopped teaching, I should say, I was like 11 or something, and I had like grade 9 Royal Conservatory ear training, which wow. was really great. I consider that to be more than my parents and my brother and everybody else's musical 
uh, forcefulness, that was the best thing because it was you know, something I could use. And uh, as for guitar, I think Travis and I would both agree that there was never like, we didn't play rock star as kids. Like that part of it was not appealing. The truth is the reason I picked up guitar and played it is because a guy I knew at the time had a guitar and he was playing Peter Gunn, the mm-hmm. Henry Mancini song. Mm-hmm. He was playing it wrong. And it just drove me nuts. And so I was just like, well, I'll show you what Fred it actually is. And and then all of a sudden I thought I could play guitar. So I did, and I just did it for something to do. <laughs> Inspired by punk prototypes in the 60s and 70s like the MC5 and the Stooges, whom you can hear behind me right now, blasting through Loose from their 1970 album Funhouse, the Good Brothers 2.0 explored hardcore punk music and that sensibility eventually informed the Sadie's all-encompassing rock sound. I saw Iggy Pop when I was seven years old, when I was with Travis at the Grove at the Police Picnic. Wow. And that show is fucking amazing. I mean, and then that, right after that, I got Funhouse. Like, that was in 1980, so I was looking for new values. Sorry, you were eight? Yeah, seven. Seven when you saw him, and then... Seven. I mean, that was a great show. It was a festival (laughs) show, so I saw tons of punk rock, and Travis was already into it. I mean, but fuck, man, 1980, the Ramones were on, um, what's the name of that TV show? Toronto Rocks with John Majors. You know, that was like pretty much pre like what i'm saying is that was mainstream after school special rock and roll so mm-hmm. it's not like punk rock was this you know holy shit <laughs> those kids are wild it was just a staple in pop culture right but i gravitated towards it and uh that was the best stuff you know influentially uh, of all the punk rock stuff that we were listening to the stooges were the most sort of important because it was like the best of everything, you know, and so that put me more interested in old sixties rock and roll, and then from there in hardcore, of course. But uh, that's why we came full circle because bluegrass is faster than hardcore. I don't know how many times I've said that to guitar geeks. <laughs> Anyhow. <laughs> Though Dallas got into punk through his older brother's record collection, Travis didn't actually explore the style as a guitar player for quite some time. When I first started, I guess it would be, you know, ACDC and Alice Cooper, and, and uh, so I couldn't play that fast, so. <laughs> right. I couldn't play punk rock. I found it really frustrating, actually, when I first tried to play it after taking classical guitar lessons for six, five years or so, you know, and then, and then trying to play a Ramon song, and I couldn't. And I'm serious, I really couldn't. It was like, it's too fast, and I just couldn't figure it out. I didn't have the ear for it, and very humbling. <laughs> From their self-titled debut record, that was The Ramones, with Judy as a Punk. Now, music snobs might laugh, but as Travis Good says, the Ramones were truly onto something innovative when they burst onto the punk scene with their speedy downstroke guitar blasts. So, by now, we have a sense about what got Dallas and Travis Good playing music, and on the path that led them to form the Sadies. But what were their first bands like when they were teenagers? Travis says that in grade 9, he was in a Blues Brothers knockoff called the Double Blues Band. Now, not surprisingly, he played the uh, role of six-string ace Steve Cropper. As for Dallas, he was a punk right away. When I was 13, around the same time, or I guess grade 8 more than that, more than grade 7, me and some friends uh, started a band called Force of Habit, and we used a hardcore band, F-O-H. Right. And uh, we used to play, we were great, actually. It was a fucking amazing band. (laughs) We were totally great. I still have the recordings. The one singer passed away. The other singer uh, still lives out in Vancouver. I see him quite regularly. He's a great, great guy. Oh, cool. And then when I was in that band, we started playing in the city, and then I started basically joining all Travis's bands, or the bands that you know he was friends with at the time. So I started playing in Guilt Parade and Sudden Impact and 
Um, but that was all like 1989, 1990, stuff like that. So by then I was already cursed. It was all over. <laughs> I played in the same band uh, for a while. While he was playing in my father's band, um, I would sit in. The band was called Blue Action Formula, and it was Brian McCullough, our sound man, on drums. And, uh, you know, like I said, I'd sit in for him um, whenever the... Oh, when you were was. away with the Good Brothers. Oh, yeah. I see. Okay. And We and also both played in Jughead together. Did, did you get all that? There were, there were quite a few uh, band names there. The first one Dallas mentioned was Force of Habit, or FOH. And I'm thrilled to say that he actually sent me a song by that band to play for this special. Now, I, I don't know if this is a world premiere exactly, but it, it's definitely rare. Here's uh, an otherwise unreleased song that Force of Habit recorded in 1988. It's called Babies. Force of Habit, a band featuring Dallas Good of the Sadies on guitar. The song was Babies and was recorded on a pink Fisher-Price tape recorder when Dallas was about 14 or 15 years old. Now, that song gives us a little taste of the punk rock that Dallas and Travis Good explored together in the 80s and the early 90s, including Dallas' stint in the pioneering instrumental surf rock band Phonocomb. So how do they get from there to here? What was their connection to Sloan's Andrew Scott? And, and Andrew's now wife, Fiona Hyatt. How did Mike Belitsky end up playing drums in the band? Dallas tells us about the origin of the Sadies and how he teamed up with Sean Dean of the influential Toronto punk rock outfit, Flag Camp. It was Ted Robinson, myself, and Sean Dean were in a punk rock band. And this was right after Flag Camp had split up, and I was in bands that split up and so on, and the three of us lived together. We had a rehearsal space. It was great um, because the three of us were able to work really hard together and then Sean got an upright bass which I sold to him then our focus instantly changed and um, Travis started to uh, sit in a l you played with Ted right uh-huh. you did yeah I know you only at least fiddle. yeah right only, only fiddle, fiddle. so so he'd you know he'd sit in a little bit with Ted and then Ted kind of He's amazing. He's Ted a guitar player? Uh, Ted's an everything player. He's a drummer with the Sadies. Oh, I but, see. Uh, okay. He plays bass with a lot of bands and stuff like that. Um, what year would this have been? This is 95, probably. And then... Um, I feel like I actually saw the Sadies in Kitchener at the Volcano. Opening for Jail? Yes. Yeah, that was us. Sure you did. Except, <laughs> except was, the thing is... Was Fiona Hyatt in the band? No. Uh, sorry, of course Fiona was. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. at I, that Sorry, point. when I said no, I was th- I was thinking the drummer, though, we've kind of jumped ahead at that point. Sorry, sorry. Was Mike on drums by that point? No. No, uh, sorry. Well, well, that's the thing. Now I'm getting confused. <laughs> so as a three-piece, yeah. we carried on for a little while. Travis started to join up, and then... Uh, Ted got disillusioned. We started. I remember even doing a show as a two-piece, just me and Sean. But uh, to make mm. the story a little quicker, 
Andrew Scott started to sit in with us right. quite often. Andrew introduced Andrew and Fiona, for that matter. Fiona was great. She was, her and I sang quite a few songs together. And we were mostly instrumental, so mm-hmm. she was a really key figure in the band, too. Mm-hmm. Um, Andrew became busy again with Sloan. He suggested Belitsky. I'm pretty sure the show that you saw would have been Mike on drums, because yeah. he was double duty on that tour. I feel like he was, yeah. He was literally learning the songs with headphones right before going on. Like, that was brand new. You saw one of his first shows. Oh, wow. At that point, he wasn't joining the group. But this was just, he was filling in for Andrew, and then the Maker's Mark was a band right. with all of us involved. So it got to the point where Mike just did more shows with Andrew in a short period of time and was willing to stay with us, and that's hmm. what happened. Okay, so I, I guess I saw the Sadies play a show in their infancy together as a band. I, I didn't know that, but I remember liking them quite a lot. Maybe, maybe even more than Jail, who I came out to that show for. For a taste of what the Sadies might have sounded like uh, around then, we're going to go to their first album, Precious Moments. Here's a, a live staple in their repertoire called Teller Lies and Feeder Candy. I met a little girl from the state of Arkansas. Her name it was Miranda. Well, I wonder love, so I asked her pa, I said, tell her lies and feed her candy, tell her lies and feed her candy. Sadies with Teller Lies and Feeder Candy. The Sadies went from that to making a bunch of albums and touring the entire planet like Mad Men, both on their own and with a host of amazing singers and songwriters who knew the best band in the world when they heard it. Still, despite the timeless nature of their music, Sadie's get saddled with all sorts of descriptors to try and pigeonhole them. It's tricky to do, because they always switch up their style from project to project. Dallas Good discusses his band's chemistry as players. Well, I think that a lot of the stuff that we all like um, about uh, certain styles of music, they all kind of come together in the mid-60s. That's Mm -hmm. to say that... You know, if you look at Bakersfield or even Nashville-type country and western, it's a lot edgier. It's not a a far cry from the rock and roll that's going on right around the corner. Right. Um, Same same with the R&B at that time, and so that's certainly the well that we draw from. Um, Having said that, I'll also you know go one step farther and say, you know, with the success of all of the instrumental bands in the early '60s country and western artists would have instrumental b-sides that are amazing or mm-hmm. or instrumental records like you know take buckaroos or strangers so those are great records mm-hmm. just as much as adventures and everything else so what i'm saying is for us it's always been sort of a common thread in these different styles of music and that's what i like to try and sorry those were our influences as a group mm-hmm. nowadays we just do all kinds of crazy crap and so it's just a matter of exercising demons at this point in our lives but uh what started us in that common thread is certainly that sort of punk rock element of all styles of music that go back to 
back when they used to use an upright bass with a telly and a gretch and a fiddle. If you knew what I know, you wouldn't go to see her. The Sadies remain the go-to backing band for other musicians, singers, and songwriters who need someone to bring their ideas to life. To date, they've worked extensively with, well, a lot of people. Here, here's a small list. Bear with me. Nico Case, Elevator, Andre Williams, John Lankford of the Mekons, The Unintended, Blue Rodeo, Heavy Trash featuring John Spencer and Matt Verdere, Garth Hudson of the band, John Doe of X, and most recently, Gordon Downey of the Tragically Hip. Now, you might not know all of those names, but they're all heavy hitters in some way. Travis Good doesn't pretend to know exactly what draws these artists to the Sadies, but he's pretty sure it's their gear. I mean, ever since the beginning, I've sort of felt like our instrumentation just sort of dictates what we play. You know, I mean, uh, I, I, I feel like the guitar is more the player. I'm the instrument, you know, I'm just the guy standing behind it, you know. It has a sound. It's a very unique sound. And I don't feel like I have a whole lot to do with that. It's more the amp, the guitar, the fact that we got an upright bass, the Telecaster. That, that is the sound. And it doesn't matter what we play. With those instruments, we're going to sound like the Sadies. And if you give us all Ibanez guitars and Marshall amps, we're not going to sound a fucking thing like the Sadies. And it's the same players. And we're not going to sound anything like us. Uh, Travis is being pretty modest there. Anyone who sees them can tell the Sadies are obviously a very hardworking band. I mean, no one can go from collaborating with Nico Case to Andre Williams to Blue Rodeo without honing their craft all the time. Here's Travis and then Dallas explaining their process. You know, I stopped like the the serious practicing once I stopped taking guitar lessons because I had to practice 45 minutes every day I had it was yeah. it was enforced by the parents and yeah. and it was a real fucking drag it was a real drag to the point where I nearly quit playing guitar just because of the practicing bit and uh, so you know it's not something that I love to do but it's something that I'm drawn to like a without even thinking about it <laughs> Because we do a lot of work with different artists and such, um, we pretty much expect of each other to do your homework. So in terms of rehearsals, we don't do that, really. We'll get together specifically for an assignment or whatever. But, you know, basically, if you have 25 songs to learn by next week or something, it doesn't free up a lot of time for just exploring the instrument or like, geez, let's just play around. It's like you got to make charts for these songs and then transfer it to memory um, in a short period of time while still trying to enjoy your favorite new acquisition, be it a record or whatever the case may be. So what I often do is wait until the day before, you know, call it cramming if you want, but it's just the way my mind works. I won't listen to anything that I need to learn until the day before because I'd rather just enjoy my life and not have the song stuck in my head haunting me all day, every day. And uh, that's just the way I work. So other people need the actual time to soak it in but then when the Sadies actually get together it should be taken care of already is sort of what we're saying because we know each other when burning seems to overcome there's a higher power the faith fire refuses none there's a higher power then why has men to help you through there's a higher Sadies have finished a new record with producer Gary Lewis of the Jayhawks, and it'll be out this May. They've also completed an album with Andre Williams, and are currently working on some new songs with Gordon Downey of the Tragically Hip for one of his next solo records. Garth Hudson of the band recruited the Sadies to back up a bona fide rock and roll legend for a forthcoming project dedicated to honoring the music of the band. Oh, and the Sadies also appear on the new compilation We Are Only Riders, the Jeffrey Lee Pierce Sessions Project, covering one of Jeffrey's songs. That's out January 26th. You can catch the Sadies live in Guelph this Friday, January 22nd, at the Dublin Street United Church, located at 68 Suffolk Street. Tickets are 18 bucks for students and $20 for everyone else, and the show starts at 8 p.m. We hope you enjoyed this peek into the work of uh, Dallas and Travis Good of the Sadies. From the 2009 album The Country Club, here's John Doe and the Sadies, with Are the Good Times Really Over for Good on the Mishmish Generational Morning Show on CFRU 93.3 FM in Guelph. I wish the earth was still silver and 
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.